There's a lot that we don't know that students and teachers know much better than we do. Welcome to Solar Spotlight, the podcast from the Society for Learning Analytics Research, SOLAR. In this podcast series, we have conversations with guest speakers to engage the wider community with leading research, practice, and key issues in learning analytics. I'm Shibani Antonet from the University of Technology, Sydney, the host for the show. The topic we are discussing today is giving a voice to stakeholders in learning analytics. As it has been emphasized, learning analytics is not a purely technical field. It involves careful consideration of human factors and needs to take into account the range of people who engage with them. This includes students and teachers considering what all these people need and what they will do with them. I'm excited to have two special guests to share their experiences on involving stakeholders in the design of learning analytics. I'll let them introduce themselves. Uh, so I'm Dr. Ed De Quincey. I'm a senior lecturer in computer science at Keele University in the UK. Uh, I'm also the director of education for the School of Computing and Mathematics here. My research and work relates mainly to the design uh, and evaluation of digital artifacts. Um, and then once you build these artifacts, what you can do with the data that they collect. So doing things like inferring human behavior. Um, so I'm Ken Holstein, a postdoctoral researcher at Carnegie Mellon University's Human Computer Interaction Institute. And so most of my research is in the broad area of human-computer interaction. I'm especially interested in methods and empirical studies involving the co-design of algorithmic systems, learning analytic systems, and AI ed, AI and education systems in particular, with teachers, students, and other stakeholders who use these systems in their day-to-day lives. Great. Thanks for joining us. Can you explain to us some of the work you've done on the topic and its context? I'll start with you, Ken. I know you've used participatory design approaches to co-design learning analytics with teachers. Can you tell us what participatory design is? Very broadly, I view participatory design as meaning meaningful participation of stakeholders in the design of systems that affect their day-to-day lives, which could include the design of interfaces, but increasingly can also include the design of algorithms or analytic methods themselves. You talk about meaningfully involving stakeholders. So what does meaningfully mean? Yeah, and I think that's where things can potentially get fuzzy. Um, So in human-computer interaction, we often talk about user-centered design methods. And so we can talk here about what the boundary might be between conventional user-centered design methods and more participatory design methods. As opposed to a lot of user-centered design approaches, I think the main distinction I see is fundamentally an orientation towards various stakeholders as collaborators in the design process. And viewing these stakeholders as collaborators in the design process has various implications. Instead of talking to them just at one point in time, maybe at the beginning of the design process, once again at the end of the design process, they have a voice at the table uh, throughout the entire project lifecycle. Yep. Maybe Ed can talk to us a lot more about the user-centered design research, because in your work, you talk about student-centered design and also involving students as partners. Maybe can you tell us a bit more about what user-centered design is? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a huge amount of overlap between these two areas, to be honest. And I think just listening to what Ken was saying, actually some of the stuff that I do definitely is participatory design. Um, I mean, broadly, the way that I think about this is that user-centered design is probably the idea of designing for users first. And then taking this as a philosophy, and at any point during the sort of design and development process, is making sure that you have that in mind. Uh, And that's sort of a broad 
idea behind it. More specifically, um, I see it as like a toolbox. So there's a lot of tools and methods for you to be able to, first of all, work out who users are, what are their strengths and weaknesses, looking at the context that they're actually going to work within, um, and then moving on to more specific things like requirement solicitation, developing information architecture. And the idea being, hopefully, is to build up an evidence base um, to make sure that for design decisions, that you have a reason for doing that. And that reason for doing that isn't what perhaps you as a developer thinks or designer, but actually what the user thinks and wants. Right. So why do you think it is important to involve the users and what value does it add? I mean, I think it's been proven. Um, the more that you involve users, the more usable something becomes. The more usable something becomes, uh, the more likely it is that your user then is going to be able to accept that piece of new technology. This has been known for, for decades. And the surprising thing is why more people aren't actually doing it still. Yeah. What do you think, Ken? In general, when thinking about participatory design as a collaboration, I like to think about complementary strengths of different stakeholders. And so I view myself and my colleagues in this process as researchers and designers as one type of stakeholder. We may have knowledge, for example, about learning sciences, about design, human-computer interaction, but there's a lot that we don't know that students and teachers know much better than we do about their context, their day-to-day -day experiences, nuances in their experiences that we won't necessarily get even from observing their classrooms for weeks or months, but can get quite easily by involving them more heavily, even for small periods of time regularly throughout the design process. Right. So uh, can you share with us your experience of involving stakeholders? What steps you went through? Yeah, yes, very briefly. Um, I've focused a lot on contexts that we have um, in the U.S. where artificially intelligent tutoring systems have been used in classrooms for uh, quite some time. And so we're entering these classrooms where artificially intelligent tutoring systems have been designed to improve students' learning, but not typically to uh, loop in the teacher or designed to address the teacher's needs, which obviously is a huge gap. So very early on, uh, I realized that there wasn't much literature out there talking about what challenges, if any, teachers are facing using these technologies in their classrooms. So to start, I went into classrooms, conducted many classroom observations, and used methods from um, some methods that are called contextual inquiry, meaning that you go into the context and you try to inquire about their practice as close to that practice as possible. So they might teach a class and at moments where you can come over and whisper to the teacher, ask some questions about what they just did, you try to do so with, well, still mostly being a fly on the wall. Um, I also held design workshops uh, after doing these classroom observations in which I tried to work with teachers to envision possible futures in which they played a more desirable role from their perspectives in these AI-enhanced classrooms. What did they do in those workshops? In, in some of the early workshops, I would have them walk through what they'd just done in the classrooms as I've seen and talk in their own words about what they'd experienced. And very quickly, as I had them kind of draw their paths walking through the classrooms, tell stories about what they'd just done, I would start hearing things that I was not easily observing just from watching, such as their emotional experiences, um, right. feelings that they were being left out, feelings that the systems were trying to automate certain roles that they wish they were doing. And from there, I started moving towards other types of activities, such as one was asking them what sorts of superpowers they might want in the classroom to kind of augment these experiences, trying to help them in quite ambitiously envision futures that would be alternative to what they're experiencing with AI in the modern day. 
Okay, so you get them thinking about the superpowers and they come up with maybe a list of things they want to do in the classroom. So what next? Typically, when we do these sorts of exercises like superpowers, it's not really the superpowers that are most valuable. It's the reasons that they express why they want them, the underlying challenges that they serve. And so our design goal next, really, this is a point where designers have decisions, have some agency. For example, a teacher could ask for superpowers that students might find from their perspective to be extremely violating, um, violating of their privacy, for example. And so as designers, we can think about that ourselves. Even better, we can involve students in the design process at that point um, and try to avoid giving teachers certain superpowers that empower teachers while disempowering students. So at that point, <laughs> we typically then move into higher fidelity prototyping. And from there, in our past experiences, it's really an iterative cycle where at each iteration, we try to assess our own areas of uncertainty. And there are typically a lot a lot of things we don't know. And one of the best ways to do that is laying out our knowledge, uh, sketching out prototypes really help you realize what you don't know. And then we try to uh, loop teachers and students back into the process as early and often as possible throughout each iteration until eventually converging towards more tangible prototypes such as actual systems. Right, so teachers are there right from the start of the design through all the steps of the design until you actually deliver the product to them. Right. One particularly important thing I think we found very early on with the types of systems we're trying to develop, learning analytic systems really, is that we didn't want to just elicit feedback on the interfaces themselves, on the graphics, on the interactions. We wanted to elicit feedback on the algorithms that are being used to model students, what they represent, what assumptions they represent. And so that's one of the things that we tried to do early on, that as we were specifying the algorithms, instead of just coding things up, we tried really hard to make things interpretable to teachers. We would actually have windows open with code, and then we'd try to visualize things for teachers, um, explain the algorithms that we're working on, and allow them to have input into the design of the algorithms themselves, where of course they could then critique various assumptions that were being made in very small parts of the code of some analytic algorithm. Great. That sounds like a really good example for fairness and transparency in algorithms we use in learning analytics. Can you talk us through some of your examples, Ed? Uh, so uh, sort of two projects where we've been using user-centered design with learning analytics. So there's a project we finished last year, um, and that was looking at a, a student-facing system. So uh, similar to what Kim was saying, when we looked at the literature, there was very few examples of learning analytics systems that were student-facing. And even the ones that have been developed, very rarely are they developed actually with uh, students. They'll be evaluated potentially with students at the end, but not using a user-centered design or participatory design process. So basically what we did was we hired some of our own students as student ambassadors, trained them up in sort of user-centered design techniques, um, and then got them to run a variety of different workshops to try and identify with their peers the kinds of things that they want from a learning analytics system. One of the key things that we were trying to do was to avoid, avoid using standard visualization techniques, um, which sounds quite strange, but sort of standard visualization techniques are excellent, but they're not necessarily things that people want to use. One of the challenges that you have with um, anything to do with students is actually getting them to use the software in the first place. So what we did was, first of all, try and find out what actually motivates students to study. So we used a, a technique from psychology called laddering. That's basically an interviewing technique where you keep just saying why. 
Why is that important? Why do you want to do that? And so on. Um, and kind of identified the sorts of things that motivate them. And then what we were trying to do was find representations of those motivations that would hopefully inspire them. For example, one of the things that motivates students uh, potentially is money, that they want to earn more money during their career. So what we did was to try and identify visual representations of money and came up with cars. So on our system, instead of predicting, uh, particularly just showing them what mark that we were going to predict that they get, we'd show them a level of car that they'd get or a level of job or if um, it was to do with that they just really loved the subject that they wanted to master that particular subject, the visualization was a, sort of a number of books, like a bar chart, but instead of a bar chart, it was just more books that they'd accrue. So that's kind of the idea that we had. And during the development of this, we ran things like contextual interviews, so getting students to use prototype versions of these tools to get feedback. And we did use sort of standard user experience questionnaires as well. Uh, we even got students to create Pinterest boards, so to create sort of mood boards, different types of sort of examples of visualization style and graphic style uh, that they'd be interested in. So that's kind of a, a student-facing version. This year, uh, we've moved to a lecturer-facing version of this. And again, what we're doing here is trying to find out how do uh, lecturers or academics reflect on the delivery of one of their courses. So usually in the UK, uh, you deliver your course over 12 weeks. Students will do a piece of assessment, a coursework or an exam. You find out how the students have done and then you sit down in your office to try and work out what went well and what went wrong. Um, and what we're trying to do is to find out in that moment where people are trying to work out what went well and, or what went wrong and what they're going to fix for the next year, what is their thought process? What is the evidence that they're trying to use? So again, we're sitting people down in their offices, so actually going to where they work to make it a natural environment and getting to think aloud whilst they're doing this. Again, when Ken was talking about being in the classroom, similar sorts of things, trying to then pick up certain questions within the context to try and identify that process, that thought process that somebody is going through. And during this, we're also then trying to identify for learning analytics, what are the questions that people want to ask of student data that would help them to work out actually what happened. So those are the sort of two examples where, where we've been trying to, to involve stakeholders to try and produce something for them that they not just use, but they actually want to use. Okay. So while it's great to include all these stakeholders in the design and get their input and having them throughout the process, uh, I, I'd also assume that it's not very easy to do that. So what would be some of the challenges you'd face and how can we address them? Uh, with just trying to get people involved with the process. For, for the students, the only way that we could do it was, as I said, to employ student ambassadors. If we ask students to, to come to these sorts of feedback sessions, they won't turn up. So what we were able to do is to actually get students to do that for us, in effect. So it's about sort of engaging the stakeholders and almost making them responsible for the recruitment. For the academic project they're working out with lecturers, uh, they're even harder to get into a, into a room, even though we offered to go to their room. And really, the only way of doing that is trying to explain to them that we're trying to make their, make their work better, uh, to try and to support them. And I think importantly, making sure that they're aware that we're making it for them, but with them at the same time. One of the issues that uh, I'm sure is the case all over the world, particularly, uh, particularly with educational technology, is that you're kind of just, uh, as an academic, you're given a piece of software to use you're given Blackboard or you're given Moodle and you have to use this thing and you don't want to use it, it wasn't your choice, 
and you don't then feel any satisfaction from using it. The idea, hopefully, with user-centered design is that hopefully uh, you're producing something that they want to use with them. Um, so they get say uh, in the production of their own software. I'll bring up two challenges that have been on my mind lately. These certainly aren't the only challenges. Um, recruitment has definitely been a, a huge challenge for us as well and continuous involvement, make sure that people don't drop out too much uh, as the study progresses. And sometimes these projects can last for well over a year. So one is it can be challenging and we don't have that many methods right now for involving users in the design of say, machine learning systems, some of these systems that first of all, aren't necessarily particularly interpretable by humans to begin with. And that of course hinders the iterative design and deep involvement of stakeholders who may not necessarily know what machine learning is to begin with. A second challenge that's been on my mind is involving multiple stakeholders and also viewing yourselves say as representing a body of learning sciences knowledge as stakeholders as well where if you talk to students and teachers, sometimes they may request things that will hinder students' learning. Sometimes students may request things that teachers will never go for. Sometimes teachers will request things that will make students feel extremely violated to the point of, in the US, actually potentially protesting the use of the systems in their classrooms. And so you're placed in a position as a researcher and designer where you're left with all of this feedback from various stakeholders and you need to negotiate among all of it, find design solutions that won't necessarily please everyone, but might be an optimum in some sense, given all of the goals of yourself, teachers, students, parents, and the list goes on. Yeah, yeah, I guess that's a big challenge when you involve multiple disciplines or people with different interests coming together to agree on something is, is really hard. I've just talked about this multiple stakeholder issue one other thing I quickly mentioned there is that a third thing that you have to do as a learning analytics designer is think about learning. And we often know quite a bit, although there's much that we don't know about what will be beneficial or potentially harmful to students' learning. Sometimes this will conflict with teacher and students' uh, theories of what will be effective for learning. And so this is another case where we can in these design processes actually negotiate with students and teachers and try to find designs that address some of the underlying needs that might be behind the request, but without sacrificing learning in the process. What I wanted to mention, it was kind of more because this is the, the main issue that I have with all of this kind of work actually, not in learning analytics, but user-centered design. The main challenge is to try and pick the right method, to try and pick the right tool to get at the information that you actually need. The default quite often in all this kind of work is to think, well, let's just do a basic interview or a questionnaire. That's really easy because we can come up with 10 questions. We can put it online and we'll get 150 people to, to fill it in and we'll get an amazing response rate and we'll be able to do statistics and a p-value and all of this sort of stuff. Um, and that's great. That's probably the easy part, right? Yes, but I'd suggest that that's the wrong thing to do quite often because a lot of the stuff that... What we, a lot of the stuff that we're trying to do is to access tacit and semi-tacit knowledge. So this is all about trying to work out how people are doing things and how they think about things, but actually they don't know. They don't know themselves how they do this sort of thing. So the example with lecturers, when they come to review how delivery went, they've taken on board a lot of information 
if you just ask them, if you ask them in an interview or you sent them a questionnaire saying, how do you review your module? They'd probably say, well, I just fill in the form. It's the same sort of thing that if I ask you how you drive, if it's become a compiled skill and you have no way then of working out all of these stages that you've learned, but now it's impossible for you to express that. So I think a lot of research in general uh, with user-centered design, and I think could be a problem with learning analytics, is this idea that the wrong method is being used to elicit the kind of knowledge that's required. So that would be sort of my, my call to arms almost. It's trying to say, right, we need to start using the right methods. And they're harder because, as we've mentioned, it's really difficult to get people into a room. It's even harder to go to their room. But the, the value of that is we're going to get far more, far richer data. It will be qualitative, but it's going to be richer and it's going to produce more usable and better learning analytics products. Like to second this call to arms, if I may. <laughs> In a lot of our studies, one of the most useful set of methods we've uh, found tend to be simulation and role-playing methods. This is, of course, second best to prototyping in real learning environments in, in the actual context, but often we don't want to do that, for example, for ethical reasons, because if we're really this uh, low confidence about the effectiveness of the tool at a certain point, we don't want to overuse uh, real uh, classroom piloting and student learning time. What we've often found in these settings is that in initial interviews, we'll ask teachers uh, whether they might like to have access to certain information. And of course, it can be useful to ask this at some point in the process while being skeptical that that's really what teachers want or students want. Later on, when we involve them in actual role-playing and task them with the question, how do you think you'd actually use this information? We'll often find that they'll change their response and say, you know what, I thought that was just cool, but..." wow, this is useless. Yeah, it's pretty, but it's useless um, with various learning analytics visualizations. And that's really been one of the most useful things for us. That, that question, trying to get at that question, how would teach their students use this information? What actual value would it provide beyond them getting excited about being able to have access to it? Great. That was a great conversation. Thanks, Ed and Ken, for sharing your experiences and your insights with us. I'm certainly taking away some of your key messages for my own research, and I'm sure our audience will appreciate your insights too. At the end of our podcast, we invite our special guests to play a fun game called Two Truths and a Lie. If you have listened to our earlier podcasts, you'd know what exactly is coming up. Ed and Ken will share with us three statements about themselves. Two are true, and one of them is a lie that we should find out. In our last podcast, we played this game with Tina Dilat and Julio Holstein. Here are their answers for those who tweeted their guesses or wanted to know the truth. So I'm Tina and these were the three facts about me. The first one, I'm an amateur rugby player and I'm the fly half of the team of female amateur players of the rugby club Leuven. Fact two, I'm a bikeaholic. I have five bikes, all for different purposes. Fact three, I'm the only female professor working at the faculty level of the Faculty of Engineering Science. So the first one was a lie. So I'm not an amateur rugby player. So I do have five bikes for different purposes. And I'm also the only female professor at a, working at the faculty level, because in fact, I'm the only professor working at the faculty level and all the other ones are working in departments. So I'm Julio. Um, the three facts that I said about myself are fact one is I really like running and I'm preparing for a 21 kilometers marathon next summer in Chile. Fact two is I have a trauma eating uh, melted cheese. 
And the number three is uh, I have been playing guitar in rock and blues band for years. The, all of them looks like lies, but the lie was the first one. So I don't like running much, and I'm not preparing for a marathon. <laughs> I would probably never prepare for a marathon. Now here we go with the two truths and a lie with Ed and Ken. Okay, so uh, I share a common ancestor with John Quincy Adams, the sixth president of the United States. Second one, whilst working at the University of Greenwich in London, Thor The Dark World was being filmed on campus and I ended up being an extra in a crowd scene. Uh, number three, at a conference in Montreal, my presentation clashed with a keynote by Sir Tim Berners-Lee and as a consequence, I only had three people in the audience. Great. I'm guessing number one, the ancestor one is probably a lie, but let's see. So, I originally wanted to go into art school um, and kind of accidentally ended up in computer science that way somehow. Immediately after finishing my undergraduate studies, I vowed to never become a researcher or go into a PhD program and instead joined a traveling troupe of anarchist robot puppeteers. Third, when I was a teenager, I briefly ran away from home with nothing but $50 and a hamster in my pocket. We hitchhiked around the country together, but it didn't last for long. <laughs> I'm guessing number two is a lie, and you've always wanted to do a PhD. Uh, but let's see what our listeners think. Thanks for listening to Solar Spotlight, conversations on learning analytics. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe to our podcast. You can find all available episodes on SoundCloud and popular podcast apps. Please join us for our next episode in January 2020. In the meantime, look out for the upcoming webinar from Solar. The Society for Learning Analytics Research now has a new and improved website. So if you haven't already, check it out at solarresearch.org. Sign up as a member and subscribe to newsletters to stay updated with Solar. If you're planning to attend LAC 2020, the Learning Analytics and Knowledge Conference at Frankfurt, Germany. Note that workshop paper submissions are due the 15th of December, 2019. My name is Shibani Antonet, and I've been talking to Ed D. Quincy and Kenneth Holstein today on the topic of giving a voice to stakeholders in learning analytics. If you would like to continue the conversation, please tweet us at Solar Research using the hashtag SolarSpotlight. Until next time.